Hey guys, you're listening to episode 55 of the Finish Line Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. Today, we're talking with Jeff Thomas, a financial advisor and the founder of Arcos Global Advisors. everyone. Welcome to the show. My name is Keelan, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Cody. In this interview, we talk with Jeff Thomas, founder of Arcos Global Advisors and co-host of the Generous Business Owner podcast. Jeff was on a typical career ladder in the financial services industry and finding much success, but it wasn't until God really got his attention that things started to get interesting. Since that time, Jeff has launched his own financial advisory firm to better align himself with the vision God has given him. Jeff is passionate about walking closely in step with God and not making a single move without his direction. And we're excited to share all he had to say. Before we get started, do you ever wish you could find more people who are passionate about generosity, serving their communities, and advancing the gospel? Do you wish you could interact with some of our fantastic podcast guests? Well, we have growing community groups on Facebook and LinkedIn where you can do just that. You don't need to have a financial finish line to join. All you need is a passion for glorifying Christ with whatever God's given you to manage. Look for the link in the show notes to learn more. And with that, let's get to our interview. All right, here we are with Jeff Thomas from Arcos Global Advisors. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Hey, thanks for having me. So why don't you kick us off just telling us a little bit about yourself and some of your story? Well, maybe I start with where I grew up. I grew up mostly in St. Louis. My dad was a pastor, but he started out as a business guy. So he was a mechanical engineer and he got what was then sort of an MBA for engineers at Purdue. And Winton was a mechanical engineer for International Harvester. And he was designing part of the engine for the Scout, which the older listeners will recognize as the first SUV, sort of. They didn't even call it that then, but it sort of was. And he was, you know, got married to my mom in his 20s. And they were going to church. And his pastor asked him, Have you ever thought about going to seminary? My joke with my dad was always, he asked everybody that question. He finally got one person to say yes, <laughs> who was my dad. And I always asked my mom about that because I thought, I said, mom, you thought you married this, you know, MBA engineer guy. I have a feeling you thought the financial trajectory might be a little different. <laughs> and she never blinks an eye. She never, she was totally on board with whatever. So that was interesting. So he went back to seminary. They actually let him work for an international harvester when he had breaks and so forth. So he was able to kind of support himself through seminary. And then he became sort of Mr. Fix-It for the Presbyterian Church. He wrote his demon thesis on how to run the church more effectively using the business principles that he'd used earlier in his career. So, you know, I'm not sure that's a super common path, but that's what he did. And so I didn't really ever think, I'd never really felt called to be in the ministry. And maybe we can talk about this more, but, you know, I kind of thought ministry, that word to me, if you're sort of all in for God, then you work for the church or a nonprofit or one of those kind of things. And I think that's a common misperception. And so almost felt guilty for not feeling that call, but I'll do the business thing. And I guess I'll support the people that are doing the heavy lifting. 
Yeah, thank you for sharing a little bit about your upbringing. I'm curious how that led into where you decided to start building a career. Yeah, so as I said, I really didn't feel called to be a pastor in a, in a church and that sort of thing. And so, you know, I used to play golf. My dad's days off were on Mondays because, of course, he would work on Sundays. And so he would usually play golf with his buddies, which were kind of half pastor types and half business people on Mondays. I just always related to the business people. I had an experience once where even in middle school, I was manning the, it was like mission day at the church, right? So like in the fellowship hall, they had the little tables set up and they'd have a little cardboard cutout about a few different ministries and a little basket out. I mean, you could drop five bucks in it or a check or whatever you wanted to. This is eons ago, of course. And I'll never forget one of my friend's dads, who's a business guy. I'm working this little booth and I'm thinking I might get 20 bucks. I mean, I don't know, right? Total even. Okay. We're talking like the seventies here. Okay. Maybe the early eighties. <laughs> and this guy drops a check for, it was like $500 or something. I thought, I can't even imagine being able to just write just a random check. Like he was buying a cup of coffee kind of thing, completely unexpected. And it just sort of stunned me because I knew that's not, you know, I didn't see everything happening with my family's giving, but I don't think random checks like that were available, shall we say. So I just remember being inspired by that. So those guys that I would golf with, with my dad occasionally, and just the generosity that I would see from business people who could kind of make things happen. Those are the people my dad would go to when they had a project going at the church or something like that. So I just always had kind of a respect for those folks. So that's kind of the path I felt led to go in. So I got an accounting degree because I wanted something practical because I was helping pay for college at Trinity and played some tennis there. That was fun. And San Antonio, by the way, is a lot warmer in the winter in case anyone needs a geography <laughs> lesson than St. Louis is. So I flew down to visit in December wearing a down coat and I got off the plane. It was like 72 degrees and I was playing tennis in a bubble, you know, so the snow wouldn't be on it in St. Louis. <laughs> And I got off of this beautiful Texas and I've never looked back. So went to work for Arthur Anderson, one of the big accounting firms back then. And it was a great place to learn, but and wonderful people, great work, but just a little to add up the numbers for me. And so I made my way. I'd actually audited a broker dealer, ended up being an auditor, an internal auditor actually for Payne Weber, which got bought by UBS 22 years ago did that for a couple of years. And then I realized I was on the wrong side of the business and came an advisor at Payne Weber about five years into my career and sort of the rest is history. So tell us a little bit about the early part of your advising career and then kind of where God started to get your attention. Yeah. You know, I really, again, I was primarily a singles tennis player. So between this idea that I wasn't really in ministry, I was just to support the people in actual ministry. That was my first mistake. I had that mindset wrong. And then I also had this singles tennis player mentality, which is not the healthiest, I'll say, in many other areas of life, which is everything is a bracket. Okay. Life is a bracket and there's only one winner. And that's not the really the way life is designed. I believe life is a team sport and there's nothing wrong with those sports. But if you translate them too much into your real life, you're in trouble. Let's start with marriage. <laughs> marriage is a team sport, as I found very early in my marriage. This Trying to do it all by yourself, not a good idea. And then even in the business, you know, as I would 
kind of built a team, it was a lot more fun, frankly. And we would, we'd do better work, frankly. We could handle bigger projects. It was great. But I really had that mentality. And literally on my computer, there was literally a scorecard button. And you could see every day where you ranked globally in the firm. So that was my bracket. Just, you know, God made me super competitive. But all of those gifts can overuse them, right? Like any of those gifts, it can be a negative. And so I think I was way too obsessed with that. And so I was just so focused on success and climbing the leader table. And I always, you know, we always try to do the right thing for people, you know, high ethics and that sort of thing. That really wasn't the problem. But I was just so focused on winning and that wasn't super healthy. And we actually, this was 95 when I became an advisor, we took the team from Payne Weber right before they sold to UBS to Morgan Stanley. And they gave me this big seven figure check, you know, just for moving over. You know, I was in my early thirties and I thought, wow, that should make me happy. That literally gave me a paper check in the year 2000 (laughs) with seven (laughs) figures on it. And I thought that does absolutely nothing for me. Something must be wrong with me. (laughs) Something is missing because I've been working so hard isn't that what you're supposed to do? Isn't that the American dream is you're supposed to work hard, do the right thing, make money, support ministry. And I was just totally empty about it. But on the exterior, everything was fine. The marriage is fine. A couple little kids are fine, but I just had this emptiness. I didn't have a purpose. I really, I was, what am I doing? And I just thought I'm just making rich people richer. I don't know what my purpose is, but that cannot be it. I've got to figure this out. I thought maybe I need to get in a different business. Again, I didn't feel like I was supposed to move to Africa or I was always afraid of that. I was always afraid if I pray too hard, he's going to send send me to Africa. We can't, I don't want to pray too hard. It's just so not true. Whatever he tells you to do, it's going to be awesome. First of all. Yeah. Yep. But I just didn't get that. And so I actually, we're going to have a Seinfeld episode here because at the end we'll get this little comfortable circle, (laughs) but I actually read Lee Strobel's case for Christ back then. It was so bad, guys, that I thought, even though I've been raised in the church, been a believer since I could accept him myself as like a 13-year-old, you know, in confirmation class in eighth grade, the way they did it in our church. And I remember saying that I trusted Jesus at 13 years old, and I meant it. But I kind of just, I still had an eighth grader's faith at 32. So my dad has this D-men and all of these things. And I think I was trading on my parents' faith for a long time. So I read the case for Christ. I said, do I even believe any of this Christian stuff? Is this all real? Or is this just how I was raised? I mean, I sort of had that almost early midlife crisis, if you you want to call it that. I read all these books on world religions and this kind of thing. None of them really did it for me. I read the case for Christ. I got about two-thirds of the way through it. Lee Strobel, of course, wrote it. And I go, whoa, I'm in. This guy's way more skeptical than I am. I just needed a little backup. You know, the full circle story is I live in Houston and Lee lives here now and I share his ministry, which is like a whole nother God story, which is amazing. And by the way, plug for him and his new movie, Heaven. And he's really a better human being than he is a writer. And he is a heck of a writer. So that's an amazing organization. But that really helped me. And that's how he and I connected, actually, was through that book. And that helped me. And I said, you know what? Okay, this stuff's true. The Bible's true. I'm going to study it intently for the first time in my life. I just joined Bible Study Fellowship. You guys might have heard of that. It's BSF to a lot of people. It's non-denominational. They have a website. I think it's bsfinternational.com or org. 
but it's you go on at least the class I went to Monday night for a couple of hours. You have a little group of people about your age. You have a little reading every day just for a few minutes. You write down how it hit you. You kind of have a group discussion about it the next week. And then you go to a deal where another just volunteer has kind of done a study and they have some professional notes and kind of give you a bit of a mini talk on it. And then they give you some real historical background as you leave. And then you do it the next week. But that got me through probably 70% of the Bible in seven years. But daily study, I'd never really done that. That daily study. And man, that changed my life forever, you guys. That's when it all came together for me, where I started seeing how it all fit together. And like, Keelan, I know you're studying for boards and that kind of thing in medicine. And I had to do that for the CPA exam, where you have to see all of the financial stuff come together, you know? And it's like the Bible, finally, all of God's words sort of came together, how the Old Testament fit in with the New and mirrored each other and the prophecies and all of that stuff. And I was like, holy smokes. It finally fit together, and God revealed to me during those years what my problem was. And my problem was I was chasing worldly success more than I was chasing him. Simple as that, because multiple times in the Bible it says you can only serve one master, God or money. And it was an ugly mirror, and I was looking at that mirror going, oh, man, I'm serving the wrong master. So honestly, I've spent the last 20 years trying to repent of that and trying to get better. And as that progress happened, things did get better. Actually, I got a lot more. I think happiness comes and goes, but joy is something that you sort of choose by doing things the right way. And I just started having a lot more joy in my life. Jeff, as you were talking, I'm making some connections. You told a story about working at a booth growing up and a businessman drops a $500 check and it clearly made an impression on you to be talking about it today. And then fast forward to your thirties and you've got a check for seven mm. figures in your yeah. hand <laughs> because things that God has blessed you with have driven you to apply that to your career. But I'm curious if along the way did that memory of that $500 check fade as you chased worldly success? Or was that always in the back of your mind? Were you applying it to the way that you managed money personally? Or did that kind of come later? Yeah, it was always there. One of the blessings I have in my life is I just have some great examples in my life. My parents were just unbelievably consistent, faithful people and generous people. I just always knew that model was attractive to me. I don't know. You know, I've got a couple of grown kids. They probably like me. I'm sure my parents talked to me about generosity. We talked about tithing and things like that. And I would hear my dad preach about it. But, you know, my parents weren't super preachy at home. They just led a very attractive life, the way they dealt with each other, their generosity toward other people. So that seed was always there. I just fell into a trap I was listening to a Tim Keller sermon even this morning driving into work, just talking about how, you know, you can have this faith life, but the pull of the world can be very strong. And I just gave into that kind of that lie about just chasing success is the real scorecard of life. It's not. It's your relationship with God and obedience to him and letting him have the outcomes. That's the true scorecard. And I was just operating on the wrong scorecard for a while, but I knew where to go back to 
for the truth and I had great models. So it wasn't that far of a path back, but I'm just grateful for that. That's mostly not because of me. It's, I'd have nothing to do with that. I just won the lottery on parents that gave me that model. I knew where to go. I knew where to go for that truth, but you have to accept it for yourself, you know? And so did I. So it was funny. I got with my wife after all this happened. She's always been way ahead of me. She's also a PK pastor's kid, but five generations on both sides of her family. I only had one little dad. Okay. <laughs> and she's much more intuitive, much more generous. Just I'm more of a numbers nerd. She's just naturally generous can read people's situations. It's just, it's incredible. So she's been immensely patient with me. But when I sort of got this inspiration and really I started understanding God's in charge, we went to like a generous giving conference and it's just amazing to hear all those stories. That was an important step for us. And I thought, okay, well, let's change our budget. Let's give away a bunch more money. Let's do that. Cause I finally understood that God owned it. Cause I was literally on like the little they literally would hand out at church like a little stair step where you could go like 1% more every year. Like, oh, it's just perfect for me. Oh, I'll just do a little more budget every year. And then I go to generous giving where people are giving away like 99.9% .9 of their net worth. <laughs> and I was like, what happened to my little step chart? <laughs> it kind of seemed insane after listening to that. And so we changed our budget. I never forget. I showed my wife, I said, honey, you know, I thought, I thought it was pretty radical change in giving for us. And I thought, well, you know, marital harmony is very important. And I was kind of secretly hoping she would veto the budget. <laughs> like we need more security, you know? Okay. She's like, Oh, sounds good. Maybe we could give more. And I was like, what? So anyway, she has not held us back one iota. So it's been a lot of fun to be on that journey with her. So while we're on that subject, how did you guys then decide how much to give or what was that process like? Or, you know, what kind of structure did you use and how has that kind of evolved over time? Yeah. You know, that generous giving stuff blew my mind. I also, around that time, you know, if you go to a journey of generosity, like a 24 hour or a weekend event, or even a one evening deal, one of the most watched videos for generous giving, you know, they try to curate some different, they tell stories and then they do some Bible just reading, really, to let you draw your own conclusions. I think they do a very good job of not being prescriptive. One of the videos you're likely to see in there is a video of Alan Barnhart. We'll talk about him later. But Alan's a guy who, you know, he's in his, I believe, early 60s now, but about 40 years ago, his parents were running just a couple of cranes. They had a small crane company and running it out of their bedroom and they were retiring and they were either going to sell the cranes or let their two sons sort of take over this little business, but they were going to retire and they literally bought a sailboat and went around the world. And so Alan has just been married out of college and he's debating with his new wife, whether to take over the crane business or they were going to go in the mission field. They were both strong believers. And so his wife really wanted to go on the mission field. He really wanted to take over the business. So they did a compromise where they set their salaries at what they would have made from the mission board. They agreed that they'll do the business, but they'll give away anything over that amount. The first year they gave away $50,000. And this year, I mean, it'll be tens of millions of dollars. And they still basically go by that model. And that kind of story... It just blew my mind. Remember, I'm a little 1% step up guy. I mean, that, <laughs> I mean, it just turned the whole apple, but, but God had already prepared me. Like I finally understood he owned it. 
I really had always just done my business plan and all my plans and asked God to bless my plan. That was basically my program. And I had it backwards. And of course, you're supposed to ask God for the plan and do whatever he says. It's so much more fun. (laughs) Anybody walking down the street listening to this, I mean, I hope you try it. And I've, you know, since met Alan, and he's also one of the most peaceful people you've ever met. He runs a gigantic company. They have 50 offices around the U.S., and he is just super peaceful as we have this conversation. He's just hiking the Appalachian Trail. It's his first time he's taken this much time off, but he's hiking the Appalachian Trail. <laughs> he sometimes tent camps when he goes and visits his offices just because he likes camping. Okay. So you start hanging around with people like this and your mindset completely changes. So I used to have a mindset of how much of my money am I going to give back to God as opposed to how much is he going to allow me to keep totally different mindset. And then suddenly now that the job is fun for me because we transformed the way we gave advice because I had this new found advice. Now the job becomes really fun. I'm having these really meaningful conversations that I never had with people before I had this transformation. So now I don't want to quit. Frankly, I don't need as much savings as I needed before. If I'm going to work until I can't work, okay, maybe I need a little something if I'm incapable of working, but I'm not exactly digging ditches. You know, we're doing financial advice in a chair. Okay. It's not that hard (laughs) physically. So anyway, just the general idea of your needs fall and the general idea of what's yours. I actually think nothing is mine. So I'm just a steward. And so it just becomes a lot easier to let it go and a lot more fun. So I just think that's the way the world was meant to be. So, you know, we've progressively over the last 20 years just kind of started giving. Well, I was working for these big firms up until about six years ago. We could talk about that a little bit. But, you know, so I didn't really own a company or anything like that up until that point. So it was really just income that was primarily what we had. And so we've been mostly just give out of that. But now that we own a company, we're, you know, donating the ownership of the company to a foundation and all of those kind of things. So it's fun. Now it's really more about the percentage of net worth being given. And so it's just a lot of fun, you know, more balance sheet giving on top of the income giving. Yeah. So you mentioned this thought that you had, am I just making rich people richer? And that's something that I've come across throughout my career, when you put it like that, it sounds different than what we have the opportunity to do in our positions. But I'd love to hear as you went through this transformation, as you adopted a stewardship mindset, how did that start to influence the way that you interacted with clients or maybe employees? And then where did you go from there? Yeah. The first thing is I had to have my own heart change. I couldn't have meaningful conversations. You can't take clients some, as you know, Cody, you can't take clients someplace you haven't been. That's just a truth. And so I had had this sort of radical transformation about the stewardship idea. I mean, of course I knew the word stewardship, but it was like a giving campaign word to me before it was like a God owns it all. And I simply steward, like I had heard those words, but I'd never really behaved that way. So like head knowledge and like, Heart and hands had not really happened. So when the heart and hands transformed, man, I was just so excited about it. Like I figured something awesome out and it had to do with money. 
and I'm in the money business. I literally went to my branch manager when all this went down and I said, Hey, just, you know, I'm going to start. I literally said this. I'm going to start telling people their money isn't their money. (laughs) And my business may crater like a stone. So if it does, at least you'll know what happened. And the poor guy's like, uh, okay. What's he supposed (laughs) to say? He was a believer, but still. And of course the opposite happened. I found an appetite for this, but the way we started doing it, and I get this question a lot from especially younger advisors or advisors who have not quite made this switch yet to maybe more meaningful conversations with their clients. And that's a common question is how do you make that switch? And I think for me, what I had to do, remember I was a scorecard button addict. Okay. One of my friends challenged me. It is almost like a diet, like 30 days. Don't touch the button. But like all addictions, it's probably better if you replace them with a healthy activity or a healthier activity. So I got a notebook. And so I would have the urge to press the button. And instead, this notebook was my new scorecard. And I would write down any time I would ask somebody where they went to church, if they were giving, anything that I was trying to just change my behavior. Or I had never prayed with a client in like, 10 years of doing the business. I mean, that's kind of embarrassing at this point, but 99% of advisors in this world probably haven't. So I shouldn't be, but now that we're kind of in this world of people like us that are thinking this way, it's more commonplace, but I had never done that. So if I prayed with somebody, I'd write it in my little scorecard notebook. (laughs) And after about 30 days, there was so much going on. I just, I would forget, like it was already became a habit. It became a habit. And then You know, we had always asked about giving and that sort of thing, but it was more of a financial planning process. But anyway, we would just start engaging in these conversations more. And then I found Kingdom Advisors, which is a nonprofit, as you you guys know, that encourages financial advisors to implement biblical wisdom into their practices. I got very involved with them, still am. And I had heard that a guy at Merrill had started a Christian focus group. So I started a Christian focus group. I was at Morgan Stanley. And we just started collecting names. I hosted like a little conference call once a month and we got that group up to 600 members. But what happened was, well, the bigger the group got, the more restrictive the firm became. And so I don't need to go into all those stories. It's a big public company, you can imagine. But at the end of the day, we felt like our team, we couldn't do the things that we were being called to do, fully communicate the way we wanted to communicate. In 2007, Ron Blue, who founded Kingdom Advisors, had asked me to be a coach for the then Kingdom Advisors coaching program. It it doesn't exist anymore, but we flew in with a bunch of other advisors from 2007, really through 2010, once a quarter for like a noon to noon conference kind of thing. I said, Ron, I'll do it, but I'm as much a player as I am a coach. How about you disciple me in the mornings and then I can help out at the sessions? And he generously did that for me for three years. And so at our last session together, we're sitting in the airport, Atlanta Hilton. He goes, he's a classic visionary and he self-professed. He's not an operator. He's a visionary. Anything he comes up with is always like 30 years ahead of time. And he goes, you know, Jeff, everything I start gets bigger and better after I leave. You know, (laughs) classic visionary. He said, this wealth advisory firm that I started, I can't believe it's, you know, 15 offices, 50 million in revenue. I literally heard God say to me, I've never heard it like that again. I literally heard audibly God say to me, I want you to scale what this guy started. I literally asked Ron, I go, did you hear that? (laughs) 
He goes, no, what? And then I looked over my shoulders, like maybe I got a glancing blow for somebody else. Nobody else in the coffee shop. <laughs> and then like when you're having one of these, like, it's not like this happens all the time, but I just remember firing back to God mentally, like, that sounds like fun because I'm on all these committees and I'm like the crazy Christian guy at Morgan Stanley. That really sounds fun to scale that. But I have five people on my team. I've never scaled anything. You got the wrong guy. And I could just, I knew it wasn't audible. It was like audible in my head. It's hard to describe. But I remember God, like a sweet grandfather would say to you, he chuckled and he goes, I know you can't do it. That's why I picked you. I'll do it. You wake up and take instructions and give me the credit. And I said, well, I can do that. So I had spent about six more years. That's when I really threw myself into that Christian focus group. We got it up to 600 members and was kind of trying to create like a super team. We were partnering like 50 or 60 advisors inside the firm, but it's not really built for that. And we were being limited by what we could do. So I really felt called to leave and start something where we could do 100% or close to 100% of what we felt called to do and communicate the way we felt called to do that. So what did that transition look like? How did you go about that? And then what looked different when you did have that freedom to kind of really push everything forward? The first couple of years, you know, we're in year six now. The first couple of years, I got a very, very common question, which was, what's the biggest surprise, you know, or what's different? And at the big firms, I used to spend it literally every morning in management's office, kind of negotiating for resources and this sort of thing. And like we would have a management team meeting at our new company and we'd make a decision and I'd be like, does anyone else need to vote? <laughs> Who do I need to go to for approval? It was just, it was kind of weird. Fantastic. So just to be able to communicate a hundred percent the way you want to communicate. And what I told people is like, you know, as my little math brain felt like we were doing about 50% at the big firms of what God was calling us to do. And in my little business plan brain, if we could get closer to a hundred percent, Maybe it'd be twice as much fun. That's literally how I thought about it. And I think this is the sort of the theme of my life is what ended up happening was, you know, we talked about happiness versus joy. My joy meter went off the charts when we did it. So one of the things we talk about a lot around here is obedience over outcome. You know, I couldn't really control whether all the clients came. Most of them did. It could have been a giant disaster. Most people are very scared to make that big transition and move all your client assets to a new platform and all of those kind of things. But God was so gracious to us. And then being able to build the team, they're not confused because we sort of have a different mission and vision at our team under a platform that had a different mission and vision. People who work for the team were frankly a little confused which ones to follow. Now there was no confusion, total unity. And I just never experienced that kind of unity before in a God-honoring way. It was just so clear what we were trying to do. So our vision then and now is to build the ideal God-honoring wealth management company. And the mission is connect people's money with their purpose and help families thrive across generations. So we do a lot more what we call right brain work, family and legacy, not just investments and strategy. We have four quadrants where we really had to live in investments and strategy for the most part frankly, mostly investments at the old places. Now we're able to do family meetings. I tried to do a contract to do a family meeting at the big firms and they just wouldn't let me do it. They said, we don't have such a thing. Well, we can do any of that we want. So just the freedom to pour into the entire family, multi-generationally, people still come. We have a niche 
of people selling their businesses who want to be generous and structuring those kind of things. So they usually come for the tactical and we usually try to surprise them on the upside with those family dynamics. So really all we're trying to do is allow God into the relationship with their money. And we think most of the industry, and trust me, I'm an insider. I was in a lot of meetings where people were expelling God from the conversation, frankly, actively or passively, but he was being expelled from it. We're just trying to welcome him into it. Cause I know when you welcome him into your finances, like you welcome him into anything else, everything gets better. Everything. I'm in Texas. So it's like, I always say, it's like a country song in reverse. You get your dog back, your wife back, you know, your truck back. <laughs> <laughs> everything gets better. Jeff, you talked about when you were growing up thinking about ministry and business as kind of separate things, but have you found now with Arcos that you've been able to find an intersection or figured out how to incorporate ministry into the way that you do business? Yeah. Great question. I think back in that Bible study time when I was trying to figure out what my purpose was and what was wrong, I read the book Halftime that you've probably heard of, Bob Buford's Halftime. And of course, Bob's no longer with us, but there's a bunch of wonderful people involved in that organization now. And they really do a lot of coaching around that idea of finding your purpose. And one of Bob's regrets apparently was that, you know, in his story, he sold sort of the family business and then, you know, started giving money away in earnest and sort of started the nonprofit. And so I think I was told that I didn't know him personally, but I was told that he kind of felt a little bad about the fact that some people thought that was the only model that you got to chuck the business world to go from success to significance requires a separation from the business world. And he didn't believe that to be true. And nor do I, I don't think anybody in that involved in that organization does. That's what he needed to do. That's a different calling, a different path for me. I don't know a different, a better way to do ministry than this business. So we're in the center of people's financial lives and the center of their families that's a very, very meaningful stewardship opportunity. And it opens up conversations that we could never have even being pastors. I remember Andy Stanley gave a talk to Kingdom Advisors and he said, oh, you think I have a big stewardship responsibility preaching the word of God? You have a bigger one in front of wealthy people stewarding those relationships that you have. And so my personal calling that kind of came out of some halftime coaching I went through was to help high-capacity men uncover their God-given purpose and give them oxygen to live it out. And so that's my personal stated calling. And the number one place I do that is through Arcos. And then what God gave me was a vision to scale a company that does just that. So it's like he knows what our calling is. He's going to give you assignments that you can do with his help. He knows better than we do what our strengths and weaknesses are. You know, for me, there's zero separation between ministry and work. I know Finish Line has been a big part of your own story. And I know you try to incorporate a lot of biblical principles and generosity conversations into your interactions with your clients. I'm curious if the finish line concept comes up with your clients very often. And if it does, how do you go about introducing that, that kind of a concept to somebody who's never heard of it before? <laughs> Good question. Yeah, we do a lot of financial planning. So 
you know, giving and things like that do come up naturally. But we've sort of adopted these three questions that are, you know, Ron Blue is, I think, made famous. One is, how much is enough for you? Which, honestly, that's the finish line question. And what I love about it, it, these are such simple questions, but so profound and rarely asked. So I'm glad you're doing this podcast to kind of get this idea out there. I love it. I love the title. How much is enough for you? How much is enough for the next generation? And what might you do with the excess if you're not going to give it all to the kids? Three very profound questions that very, very few financial advisors ask. So let's just unpack how much is enough for you. That implies there's a number that's enough. Our society says there's never enough. What do you mean? You don't even have to bring it up. Nobody brings it up. You just, you do a financial plan. You just say, well, I mean, how much you spend it now? And then increase it for inflation. I mean, the answer is as much as humanly possible. That's how much. And so when you say how much is enough, we, that demands an explanation. What do you mean? And so that implies there is a finish line. And then the kids question, that's actually the number one question we get, even from non-Christian clients. They're worried about how much to give to kids. Most people know that you can ruin your kids by giving them too much too early without enough preparation. So that's a fairly well accepted discussion, but also a difficult one and not formulaic. It's not in the Bible. You know, Ephesians 2 does not say X number of dollars adjusted for inflation is what you should spend or on your kids. And then, okay, so all of these things require discussion with the family and prayer. And then the third one, you know, what do you do with the rest? Some people have a little bit of generosity at death. But if you've done this work on your finish line and the kids and there's a differential, I always say, I don't think you get credit for giving money away when you're dead. By the way, it's not very fun. <laughs> so why not give it while you're living? As Ron would say, so you're knowing where it's going. And then you get great tax deductions. You can include the family, all of these amazing things. So, you know, that's what we're trying to do at Arcos. We're just periodically giving more and more of the stock to our foundation. And that's our hope is that the whole thing will be owned by the foundation as Alan Barnhart's is. And, you know, we do the Generous Business Owner podcast, and these are my co-hosts, Alan Barnhart and Jeff Rutt, and both of those guys have given you know, the vast majority of their ownership in their companies to a foundation, and they are two of the happiest people I've ever met, joyous, I should say, people I've ever met, have amazing families, and just are not self-centered at all, so others-centered. So those guys are a couple of my idols, so it's just fun for me to hang around them, so I've been totally inspired by those guys. I want to be them when I grow up. I do want to come back to the Generous Business Owner podcast and hear more about that, but I did have a question specifically about Arcos. How do you create and maintain a culture where these things that we're talking about are important to everyone there? It's amazing, Cody. I joined a C12 group when I started the company. It's like YPO for Christians. Okay. And I know there's Christians in YPO, but it's a CEO peer to peer group. And I thought, Oh boy, you know, I'm 48 starting this thing. And these people are way ahead of me. I got a lot of X's and O's, you know, to catch up on, on how to do this. But I realized in there, because a lot of people buy businesses, inherit businesses, you know, merge businesses, there's all kinds of different things that happen in corporate America. And these people are all amazing. I just love the group. But what I realized is 
while I thought it was a disadvantage, perhaps, to start so late, I'm not upset about it. I don't wish we did it any earlier. I feel like we did it when God told us to do it. So I'm not upset about that. I just, I just know I'm not that young starting it. And I thought that might be a disadvantage. And it might be in certain ways. But one of the advantages of starting it later is I had total clarity. I mean, literally God said to me, scale this thing in this business. And I'd already been in the business for over 20 years. So I had a lot of opinions about it, how to do the X's and O's. But I also had a really clear vision and mission, really, really clear. It had to be God honoring. And so literally when we interview people, I would just tell the story, just like I'm telling you. And I just say, what do you think of that? And if 80% of them think I'm nuts, is what they said. <laughs> it ain't going to work. And about 20%, because I'm trying to screen it, is like, oh, what do you think? And they say, it sounds too good to be true. This kind of thing either expels people instantly or completely attracts them. Mm-hmm. So it's actually beautiful. And then just being so overt about what we're trying to do. So we don't put the cross on the front door. We're happy to serve non-Christians. But the advice we give, we're not backing off of it. We know where it came from and we're happy to tell them and we hope we get the chance to tell them where it came from. So I think just being so obvious about what you're trying to do and we do a devotional on a firm wide call every Wednesday. You know, I always tell people if that offends you, this is not the right place for you. You know, we're documenting all of this in our corporate documents and all of those kind of things. So it's just super clear. Nobody's going to be confused about what we're doing when they walk in the doors. I think that's the best thing about a culture. It should absolutely attract that small number of the right people and totally repel the wrong people. And it's done that. I've been actually amazed. I've been actually amazed at the quality of people that are attracted. And I can't take credit other than speaking the vision God gave me. He just brings us the right people. I could literally go down. We have 20 people now. I could literally go down the list to each person and tell a God story about how they found us. It's incredible. Yeah, that's some great advice. I wanted to come back to those three questions that she mentioned, the Ron Blue questions. And you mentioned the one about your kids. How much do you leave to your kids? And I'd be interested just to get your take on that or how you might approach that conversation with the client, maybe just because, you know, we talk a lot about finish lines on a personal level, but that's like another important aspect of it that we don't get to talk about as much. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on where to go with that. Sure. Two of the lines I always use are, you know, there's Warren Buffett's line about you want to leave your kids enough so that they can do anything and not so much that they can do nothing. That's a good line. And then my other favorite is you want to give your kids a leg up, but not two legs up on the couch. So that's, you know, they're (laughs) kind of the same image, if you will. So that's the key, right, is we have a client, I'll never forget, spouse, the wife inherited some money from her father who passed away was very wealthy. And she and her husband had been working up until their in their forties, but they couldn't have children and they ended up adopting some children kind of later in life. And she said to us one time in a meeting, you know, I'm concerned about the girls, you know, as they get older. And I said, Well, what are you concerned about? And she said, They've never seen us go to work. So those kids grew up never seeing their parents go to work. So I think one of my friends did a little talk with his father when he was in his thirties and his father was 60 or so. And his dad said something very profound. He goes, you know, if my son here is running the right software in the brain, 
and heart, I could leave him a hundred million dollars. Totally trust him. It'd be fine. I think he'd be great with it. But if he's not running the right brain and heart, I can't even leave him a dollar. He'll do something bad with it. So really it's about the zeros. It's about the training. And I love the line to love all your kids equally, but you do not have to treat them exactly the same financially and all that. It's really just not formulaic. And the world tries to make it a template. Divide your net worth by the number of kids you got. And the only decision you got to make is what year are they full trustee? It ain't that simple. And we try to make it that simple. It's much harder work. It's not formulaic. I think the greatest thing you can do is provide an amazing example of chasing God, finding your purpose, chasing that. And the money, if they're doing that, you know, the rest of it is details. I have my opinions about how we're doing it. A lot of that has to do with the way I grew up, having to hustle. I think it was actually kind of good for me. There's <laughs> a little, maybe a little too much. But I have friends and clients who grew up with a lot of help and have a, you know, they want to provide a much bigger lifestyle for their kids. So it's not formulaic, but I think there's these principles of living out. You know, inheritance is not just money, right? It's a character. And, you know, we talk about five different capitals, you know, character capital and relational capital and spiritual capital and all of those kind of things. It's not just financial capital. And if you had to bankrupt one, it would be the financial. If they have all those other capitals, they're going to be just fine. So it just ain't about the money. I think we make it way too much about the money. Jeff, tell us a little bit more about your podcast, Generous Business Owner. How did it come together? What do you aim to do through that podcast? And how's it going? Yeah, it's going great. Thanks for asking. I had met Alan Barnhart, who I mentioned earlier, who was an inspiration to me. And then I had called Peter Greer over at Hope International, the kind of Christian microfinance place. And I had a little project I wanted to possibly do with them. And anyway, I wrote a book called Trading Up, Moving from Success to Significance on Wall Street. And Peter read the book and he said, you need to meet our founder. And I said, I thought you were the founder because <laughs> he's sort of the face of Hope International as far as I was concerned. Longtime president and an amazing guy. And he goes, no, Jeff Rutt founded it. I go, oh. And so anyway, he connects us. And I found out Jeff Rutt, you know, he grew up as a dairy farmer, became a home builder, and then very successful on the East Coast and has given 89% away to his foundation. And one of his friends and mentors was also Alan Barnhart. So we got to talking about that. And he said, you know, I've been trying to tell Alan we should write a book. You've already written one. Why don't you write one with us? So we sort of kicked those outlines around. It really just didn't all come together. And we said, you know, we'd rather just have our friends. Why don't we just do a podcast, have our friends on and tell their generosity stories. And we'll just see. Maybe we'll do a buckle down the road. And so that's what we've been doing. We're only about, as we record this, only, you know, we'll probably have 20 or 25 episodes out. But it's been an absolute riot. And all we're trying to do, you know, the world's noise is loud, and these stories that have inspired me so much with just these guys, heck, just my co-hosts alone, I love stories. I love telling stories. I like hearing stories. I'm inspired by stories, just like what you guys are doing. I love listening to your podcast and the stories you have on here. But we're just trying to inspire people down that road. So, again, and even our business, it's business owners. We're very focused on business owners having a transition. They're really thinking a lot about legacy and what do I do and how do I do my giving and we just use it all the time for people to just listen to stories and be inspired. Let's see how God will use other people's stories to inspire you 
uniquely. So just inspiration on the road or people who have already been maybe a little further than other folks to see where that road might lead and be inspired the way I was with those guys. So they helped me. So I'm just one beggar showing another burger where they got a little piece of bread. Yeah. And I'll just say for our listeners, if you guys haven't checked out their podcast, there's some really awesome stories on there. I've enjoyed it a lot myself. So I would highly recommend if you have listened to this podcast at all and like it, then you will definitely like what they're doing. Yeah, I completely agree. I've really enjoyed the episodes that I've listened to so far and keep up the great work, you and your co-hosts. I had one more question. You are in a position of influence in a number of different ways, and that is a blessing, but it's a large responsibility. And I'm really curious how you keep yourself centered, how you make sure that you're incorporating God into the daily decisions that you make, but also the larger tougher decisions that you've already navigated and are continuing to navigate? Great question. I've just been blessed with a lot of amazing mentors. And one of them is a guy named Terry Looper, who wrote a great book I would recommend called Sacred Pace about how you make decisions with God. And, you know, in there he talks about getting neutral. In other words, taking yourself, your biases as much as you can out of the decision and just, hey, whatever God wants to do, you know, praying like crazy continually. It's not like just a linear process, just all of these things, just continue to do them as you're trying to make especially bigger decisions, consult other people, other godly people, see if your decisions sort of line up with God's word, look at the facts, analyze the circumstances. So sort of use your God-given talents, and then you do not make a move until you have complete peace that you feel comes from God on that. So that's kind of on the bigger ones. I really like that. And on just the day-to-day though, the quiet time that I started really with Bible study fellowship, just reading those verses in the morning and sort of meditating on those and praying. Popular term is that, you know, just call that quiet time. But I didn't do that for the first 10 years of my career on a regular basis. I can't think of anything that's been more transformational. And so, I mean, multiple times a week, every day I get some sort of adjustment, even if it's just my blood pressure falling (laughs) from my (laughs) to-do list. And all the decisions you got to make all of us on a daily basis. If it's just that, I'll take it. But usually there's some little inspiration or little adjustment that gets made. And I always equate it to like baseball. I was a tennis player, but I I always picture like in a cage, a baseball cage, you know, you got to practice your swing before you go and they're throwing 95 mile an hour fastballs at you. You're not going to learn your swing in the less than a second it takes for that ball to get from the pitcher to the catcher you got to spend some bullpen time getting ready. And so that's how I look at it is, you know, get your swing ready in the morning so that it just sets my mind in a different place, ready to make decisions in God's way, as opposed to my own. I wake up in my flesh every morning trying to make decisions myself and I have to lay all of that down. I literally pray my calendar. Thanks for the day before. Sorry for the things I think I screwed up. Here's what I got today. Tell me what to do. So it's back to that original deal where he said, I'll do it for you. It just took a lot of pressure off me. He said, wake up and I'll tell you what to do. So I literally just do that. I just wake up, do my little quiet time, see what the word says to me, pray the calendar, and I ask for the wisdom. It's just amazing how well it goes. And I think the primary thing is just getting myself out of the way. (laughs) I'm a big barrier to the right moves. I tell the team all the time, 
all of my ideas are complete garbage. All of God's ideas are amazing. Fortunately, we try to listen to him as much as humanly possible. Well, you know, you've certainly had an incredible life and career all leading up to where we are now. I'm curious what you see coming on the horizon. What are you excited about for either your own life or for the business? Where do you see God moving and what's going on? Yeah, you know, it's so interesting, right? God said to scale this business. And so, you know, I am obsessed with that. I'm obsessed with stewarding that vision, but I'm not stressed out by it because again, he told me he would do it and the it's a pressure's not on me. The only pressure I have is the release of it to him, which is really fun. So yeah, I think, you know, the vision is to turn into the Chick-fil-A of wealth management that all the high capacity advisors in this business, not all of them, but a good percentage of them will join ranks and we'll have offices all over the country and it'll be a top 10 wealth management company like Chick-fil-A is a top 10 fast food restaurant. And and it's just obvious that that's where if you're a believer and smart and want to be in the wealth management business, you ought to at least look into it. That's not happening. We have 20 people. Okay. I realize <laughs> I'm not completely delusional, but that's the vision, you know, and I'll probably be dead and gone when that happens, but it's okay. If you grow 25 or 30% over a lot of years, that compounding, as we know, can do it. And companies like Hobby Lobby and Chick-fil-A have done it. Why can't we? So, but I don't feel the stress of it. The only pressure I have is the obedience. That's not pressure. That's a relief of pressure. So that's really where I see it going. Well, Jeff, as we wrap up this episode, I want to leave some time for our manager's minute. We like to end every episode with one practical action that our listeners can take to step into their role as stewards and manage God's wealth wisely. So, Jeff, do you have a suggestion for our listeners today? Well, you know, I've heard what some of your other guests have said, and they stole most of my good material. <laughs> so I hate to repeat, and this one might be a repeat. Maybe I didn't listen to this one. But I was actually I'm thinking about COVID, and we're empty nesters now. And so we eat out a lot. My wife's a fabulous cook. But for two people, she says it's not that much fun to cook, and I don't blame her. So we eat out a lot, you know. We see a lot of restaurant workers, and I was at a place this weekend that said, hey, will you please be nice to our workers? At least they showed up. <laughs> okay. So we know that they're struggling. I mean, it's tough times with inflation and restaurants trying to find enough workers and all of these sort of things. And so, you know, I've heard some other folks talk about a little slush fund. I love that idea of just kind of carrying around a little bit of cash and if you just overhear a conversation or something, you're just able to bless them in the moment. But more specifically, I think shocking people with a big tip. I met a client the other day and the old accountant dies hard. So I like to self park. Okay. But he went in the valet line. I go, I don't like valet and, you know, people in my car and like, then I never have the cash or whatever, you know, he goes, Oh, I love the valet. I go, what do you mean? He goes, I love to give them a big tip. It's an opportunity to bless them. And I'm like, Oh man, now I got to start using the valet line, you know, <laughs> but I love that idea of just, that is the slush fund, the blessing in the daily life. And, you know, you don't have to evangelize them or you can, if you feel led to do that, if God's telling you to do that. But I just love that idea. My suggestion is just leave twice as big a tip as you usually do a couple of times. If you feel so led, it's a tough business, especially now. Yeah. Amen to that. Well, Jeff, this has been fantastic. We're so glad we got the chance to have you on the show to share all the incredible leaps of faith that God has led you through all the way up to where you are today. And we just 
Thank you for giving us the time. Hey, thanks for having me on. I'm just a big fan of what you're doing. I know it's inspirational to many people, so thank you. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting a financial finish line, the finish line movement, or anything else you heard on the show today, we would love to hear from you. And now I have a quick question for you. Do you know anyone who is living a life filled with generosity, purpose, and mission? If so, we would love to talk to them. They don't need to have a financial finish line, and they don't need to have all the answers. They just need a heart to steward God's wealth to the best of their ability. If you know someone like that, we would be honored if you would connect us. You can reach us on Instagram at finishlinepledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. Finally, if you want to find any references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 55. That's all we have for today. We'll see you next time. 